Welcome to the EIS Navigator. I'm your host, Brian Moretta. How do many venture-backed companies fail, and how do they avoid it? Elliot Lim has seen inside many startups and scale-ups and draws in his experience to give us some answers. His background is in fintech, but the lessons apply universally, as we discuss boards, investors, challenges of scaling, good metrics, founder health, and way more. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget you can subscribe through all good podcast services or following the link in the show notes. If you have any suggestions for future topics or guests, then you can email us at inquiries at harmonco.com. Without any further ado, enjoy this episode. So today, I'm pleased to be joined by Elliot Lim, who is founder and CEO at Cubed. Welcome to the podcast, Elliot. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure is all ours. As usual, we'd like to start by getting to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us how you became involved in the world of fintech and venture capital? Yeah, absolutely. Um, almost a textbook natural progression for me. Uh, mm-hmm. Computer science degree, software engineering, master's. Uh, I then, after a very brief stint, seemed being a professional musician, uh, which doesn't really fit the, uh, the standard rule book. Uh, but actually, I think it makes you a great presenter in later life. Uh, I, I then went to work in banks. I worked in banks for around 20 years uh, across the UK, US and Asia. Uh, I then terms to what at the time seemed to the dark side of going to fintech. Uh, it was very much around, well, actually a little bit before that. When I was working in the banks, I started running the innovation labs. And so I was very much what I now look as a fintech assassin. <laughs> I would sort of take back in those days some really smart kids with a great idea and try and turn them into bankers mm-hmm. um, or, or destroy their lives in other ways, such as, uh, I don't know, please come and give us a free POC for six months and use all your runway. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I, I, I think that's not as bad as it used to be. I think we're a lot better now. Uh, I then went to work for what is now Finastra, was MySys at the time, sort of run their corporate banking business. Uh, I then founded a couple of companies, uh, tech companies, consultancies. And then I went to work for Mambu over in Amsterdam, later Feedzai in Lisbon. Uh, worked with a lot of fintechs through my own consultancy, founded Cubed. Uh, which we are the, the scale-up partner, growth partner for fintechs, mm-hmm. around a year ago. And uh, since then, we've been having fun working with a lot of different fintechs as you know, operating partners, investors, and connectors. Yeah, so it sounds like Cubed has an interesting business model. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what it does? Yeah, absolutely. So we work directly with founders and also with VCs. So we get pulled in usually for several reasons. Because the VC side, we can be pulled in for due diligence, if it's sort of sort of an early stage into one of their deals, we can be pulled in to sort of look across their entire portfolio and do a review. We can be pulled in to do turnarounds, or there can be a company that potentially could have hyper growth, and they'll say, "Hey, we need some help on you know." Usually, the we usually work from the product market fit through GTM through driving them through different scales. Mm-hmm. We work all the way from seed uh, through to DEF, where you want to you want to take it, mm-hmm. and we work then with founders, CEOs on where have they got problems. And if you, we consider it basically as a, a complete funding founding cycle. So as a founder, CEO, you're either in, we need to raise money or we need to spend money and grow. That's mm-hmm. the way you're going into a hyper yeah. growth. And it always steps up to that next level. We work through that by being operating partners. We put people in there who have got the playbooks. They know how it works. We have a data model based on nine different data sets. We go and look and we can assess Basically, basically, our job with the data model and our playbooks are we can predict where there are going to be any sort of breakages. Uh-huh. So we can say, hey, 
if you see this in the data, this is where you're probably going to have a problem. Let's go and address it before we get there. Actionable insights, roll the sleeves up, work with them, tell them how to move to the next level. We also invest and we also obviously open up our networks for those companies. Our, our general way of working with people is you basically do a split model. It's half equity, half cash. Cash means that we can still continue to hire and put in place the best people we have, mm-hmm. covers the expenses. But actually, we don't make money unless you make money. So we put skin in the game. We take half our payment in equity. And therefore, we have a, a longer term play and make sure we're completely pulled in. And as I said, we'll also invest depending on mm-hmm. what's needed at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That sounds quite interesting. So one of the things that interests me is given where you are, you must get a fairly broad view of the world of fintech. So at the risk of to ask a question that's too general, how's fintech doing just now? That's a great question. Um, depends who you ask <laughs> and, 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 and what we do in the fintech. Look, I think fintech, there's obvious problems in the market with investments and everything else. And look, I can, I can tell you the reason why Cube exists. The, the reason I founded Cube was mm-hmm. the fact, I mean, forget 90% failure rates of startups, 72% making it to Series D, but 75% of venture investments failing made me realize there's something very wrong in the market. Mm-hmm. And you know, it gets beyond fintech. But if you look at three quarters of companies failing means that, one, you're starting to kill a lot of hopes and dreams. You're mm-hmm. wasting a lot of LP money, flushing it away. And like I understand the high returns that come over the years and the, you know, the rising tides mm-hmm. bring all the boats up. But the thing that actually kills me is, it means innovations are only running at 25% of optimum in an industry that is highly innovative and needs to run at a, at a stronger innovation to really drive to where banking needs to get to. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's why I found the cubes. And I think that's not, incre- that's not improving fast enough, to come back to your question about how FinTech doing. I think there are areas where it's doing well. I actually think the, the pullback on the funding for a, for a while, I think I read a stat 49% down year on year at the first half of 23. Mm-hmm. I think that's actually driving the right behaviors. I think it's starting to make people think a little bit more. So mm-hmm. I think the, the due diligence on investments, which I do think has been lacking in the past, I still think there's a lot more can be done. I think that fintech, as in the companies that are going to make it, are going to be in a much better place because I think there'll be the right bets made. Mm-hmm. And I think there'll be people failing sooner. Like, that's not a bad thing. I think they, people, you know, failure is an interesting one. If people fail and then pivot the business or they fail, restart, do something else, that's what you expect as an entrepreneur and go and drive that through. The sooner you do that, the better. And I can't think of many companies I've been involved in that didn't go through at least one major pivot earlier in their, in their life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's forcing it through. Now, here's where I think FinTech still has a long way to go. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is at the risk of annoying people. Controversial opinions are extra welcome. <laughs> there we go. I can be controversial. You've got the right person. Uh, money is available if you are a good founder, you're experienced, you have a good idea. There's a bit of a lemmings mentality still in the venture capital community where, one, if somebody jumps onto a company and does the due diligence, everybody assumes the due diligence was great and then will do mm-hmm. follow-on investment. Secondly, if there is a category of company that has been successful and then the next generation comes along, people may jump into that as well. So yeah, we see a lot of that. Right. And, and that, those natural biases just tend to go through the, through the entire ecosystem and cause problems. Now, 
where where the challenge comes, I think actually is on the founder side. Founders need to be strong when they get those opportunities for investment and take the right money. Don't follow the highest valuation. Don't follow the biggest logo. Take the intelligent money mm-hmm. that's going to allow you to grow your business. And very easy for me. If you're a founder and somebody's coming to you with money, turn around to them and say, okay, well, when you're on my boards, are you going to add value to me? Were you going to help me think, build, or operate? And if they can't answer those three questions to your satisfaction, they're the wrong investors. I, I think that switch of the power to the founders taking that approach is a, a huge thing that I'm starting to see a little bit happen, but there mm. needs to be a hell of a lot more of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's an awful lot in there I want to dig into. So I, I'm <laughs> going to rewind a little bit. You mentioned about 70% of their failures and I, of companies fail, and you sort of picked out several things there. Are uh, is it the wrong companies getting funded? Is the wrong funders funding these companies? Is it just, you know, in- inevitably what we're doing, there's going to be 75% failures? Is it operational issues? What's actually causing these companies to fail? Look, we're not perfect. Nobody is. And I'm not, no. I'm not going to come in and say that what we do is amazing. Companies we're in, we are involved in, we don't go anywhere near 75% failure rates, right? Our, our idea is to turn it to a 25% failure rate. And as I said, failure can be okay if it's an early failure, mm-hmm. you move it, you yeah. pivot and those sort of things. Do you think there's been too too many companies that should have failed early that have been kept going just now? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've seen companies with no product market fit run for the next five years and still still get funding because, you know, at some point we will find it. Please trust us. Let's keep going. No, they won't. I'm going to call it due diligence, but I think it's a bit more than due diligence. I think there is that basic operating procedural model there was some uh, stats I saw. Most, most VCs call them a platform. So the VCs who invest in their platform, they will go and have you know, people within their, their company who will actually go and be the operating partners will go and look at the companies uh-huh. and evaluate it a little bit more. Problem is most of them haven't really been operators. They still come from an investment banking background and they go in with the rule book, but not the scars and those sort of things. Uh-huh. I think there's something missing where People aren't going in and looking at the basics of these companies and seeing the obvious problems. And it's, I've been in a couple of unicorns. I've seen how it's done really well. I can go into pretty much, or we can go into pretty much any company from seed through to C, definitely, Mm -hmm. maybe beyond as well. Give me your last two board decks. Give me view of your pipeline. And let me speak to six people in your organization. I'll tell you where you're going to fail. And... No, that sounds like a you know, bravado thing saying, you know, we've got a way of doing this, we know best. It's not that. We look at the basics. There's nothing brutally clever about what we do. I can give you 12 metrics that you need to look for in every organization. I'll give you two that if, if you want to find two metrics in an organization's due diligence that are very rarely looked at and actually will tell you more than you'll get from 90% of due diligence, forecast accuracy. And the percentage of quotes carriers making 80% of their target. Mm-hmm. And people will say, oh, well, that doesn't tell you about the product market fit. It doesn't tell you about it. Well, it does, actually, because it tells you we're forecasting we're going to hit these deals at this point in time. If you do that, you have, one, a product market fit. You have a product that has capability. You have credibility in the market. And you have an understanding of the processes of the buying side of your customers. And if you then look at the percentage of your quotes carriers hitting that, that tells you how it's not just a hero culture. It's yeah. a, this actually is there as a proper sustainable way of sustainable, predictable growth is all you really need as a business. 
Many more things we have around it, but I, I always call those two out as sort of a very early stage. Let's have a look what's happening. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll give you one more, which is why I asked the board decks is never ceases to amaze me. The lack of complete transparency in a board deck from founders and C-level <laughs> and the lack of people being able to spot it from the investor board side, sometimes just I'm, I find it incredible. It's, it's almost like we're giving you money, we trust you to spend it, please go and do it. There should be trust, 100%. But there needs to be mechanisms and measures around that. Trust but verify. Correct, yeah. And, and you've got to measure these things. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so you mentioned about looking in, you can see where companies can fail. Where's the typical thing, where's the typical points that you see companies failing in that process? Um, look, I've already talked about product market fit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can look at the... We, we work on a standard model that basically says, do you have the correct go-to-market strategy? So do you have... And look, I'm, this is assuming you've got a product market fit. Assume the technology exists, okay? You've got right. early stage, mm-hmm. sure technology is scalable and all that sort of thing. Yeah. To one side... Because I do think that due diligence actually is pretty good. And there's a lot of people out there who can look at the tech stack can tell you if it's real or not. And people feel it. Mm-hmm. It's the next bit where I think people miss. And it's, it's that gray area from product market fit into the GTM supercharger. So yeah. we say, do you have a clear strategy? And that strategy sometimes is a founder-led strategy if it's founder sales, wherever it may be. But you need to have your marketing, your sales, and your product teams all completely aligned in what do we sell, where do we sell it, how do we sell it? Mm-hmm. And that needs to be very, very clear. And that gets felt quite a lot. But then the next two are where I think most people fail. And it's, it's again, quite shocking, which is, Hire the best people, enable them. So simple. Mm-hmm. But if I was going to say there's one measure where I see, forget all the KPIs, just from a gut feel, where I see successful companies and companies who fail, it's people. It's 100% the people. If you are hiring exceptional people and you're enabling them to do their job really well inside your organization, and you have what most people would call culture, we call it a company personality. We mm-hmm. measure the personality of the company. If you have that right personality with the right people, with that right vision strategy, mm-hmm. and you enable them properly to do their job, mm-hmm. honestly, I think that is the biggest differentiator. And it's in Nemesis to amazing. I can go down a very large rabbit hole here about where <laughs> I think the biggest problem is around the HR organization is never seen as credible enough and quite often it's not hired to the right level and all sorts of things. Because if you fix that and get the right people, you, you changed again. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I've seen several examples, even in my own sort of limited experience of direct company contact, where you got founders who are very strong founders, but you can imagine recruiting people is a skill, and they probably don't have experience, and they need to find that. And secondly, when they do, they're also so used to doing it. Delegating is hard. Yeah, look, somebody, I, I think somebody told me that the best things about founders, right? If you're going to be a great CEO, you need to be the one who gives all the energy. You need to be the, the head cheerleader. You need to be a storyteller naturally. Um, and you, you'll find most very good founders all that. But actually, the hiring the best people, enabling them and retaining them, I think is where a lot of them fall down. And they need some help with that. And that's why I think the you know, that HR function is tough because we all have a natural bias, and especially first-time founders. So I always, I always get people to reflect. When we go into businesses and we, you know, you, you'll see this in very good. 
you'll sometimes get the the C level or the senior team without the founder there because you take them to one side and almost say, hey, what's going on? Where's the problems? And you'll quite often find that oh, but the founders everywhere, they're, you know, they're crazy, they have an ego, they do their things their own way, they're not telling us what to do, whatever the reason is behind that. Yes, you're going to be crazy to be a founder because honestly, it's going to kill you if you don't get it right. It's damn difficult. But also, if you're a first-time founder, you think about this in a hyper-growth company, every day you wake up with the biggest job of your life and you have to relearn the rules of engagement every single morning. Mm -hmm. How exhausting and difficult is that if you don't have the right people around you to advise you, help you, and just bring and support you in that struggle? I, I think it's crazy that people expect. Again, coming back to the where things fail, put the money in. If you're not going to be there to help add value with the think, build, operate, and not going to help your founders as an investor grow and keep an eye on them and help them build into that person they need to be, you're wasting your money. That's why I think a lot of things fail. There is that relationship between the investor and the founder and how mm -hmm. do you actually build that trust, that growth and everything else that comes mm -hmm. with it. And how good do you, well, it sounds like that, that is not good because we've seen, I think a lot of people enter, you know, certainly in the space we focus on with EIS of Easy, which a lot of new IS fund managers over the last sort of decade. Most of them seem like decent people. They've all got some sort of, you know, whether it's angel investor experience, but moving up to that professional fund manager and providing that degree of support is not necessarily straightforward. How do sort of venture capitalists kind of fix that problem? That's a brilliant question. Look, boardroom diversity is a whole other rabbit hole we can jump in. <laughs> um, and I don't mean and I don't even mean diversity by you know male, female, whatever you want to call it, right? It's diversity by think of where most most people come from and work in a venture capital, especially large companies. Usually an investment management type background, investment banking type mm -hmm. background, they'll come through a natural progression. They'll join a VC, they'll come through the associate model, they'll come up to be a partner. At some point, they will get their first board role. They will then go into that board with two problems. One is the first board role. They don't know that they're going to be dealing with a founder who isn't an expert on growing companies because invariably they're not. And even if they're a second, third, fourth line founder, it's a different company. And secondly, they don't have a lot of gravitas back in their own company if it's a large one. They, they struggle, but they are needed by their own ego and their own rewards to be successful. But what does successful mean? Well, it's getting the highest return on capital. How do you do that? Well, here's the rule book, follow it, let's go and do that. Now, imagine you've got four or five different investors and they've all got these same people there because if you're not a big company, you're not going to attract you know, the, the most seniors in those organizations. Uh -huh. so, so you basically have... And again, um, it's almost a cartoonish, I'm skitting this, it's never quite this mm -hmm. bizarre, but yeah. four or five people who completely control the purse strings, completely control how this works, with no real power, no experience, no knowledge, actually at the coalface of doing this, never really worked inside a startup or a scale-up, and a guy sitting opposite them on the table who's probably doing this for the first time ever, mm -hmm. or second or third, but in a different guise, who in that room actually understands what good looks like? Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for me. And you need people around that table. So it's you need advisors. You need people who have been in there, got the you know, got the T-shirt. People who got the scars. People who have failed. People who have mm -hmm. built unicorns. People who have driven these things to the next level. Mm -hmm. Because you can't read this stuff from a book. It is 
yeah, you can pick up the, the, the majority of it, but there is still that sort of gut feeling inside you goes, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I know what's happening here, I know what happens next. Yeah, you, you you can easily find out there's lots of guidance on this is what a board is, this is what your responsibility is, this is what a board, you know, you're there to set strategy. Yeah. Well, actually, what does that mean, you know, today when the founder's coming and it, Assuming they're saying they've got this problem, you know, and they, as you said earlier, they don't always say they've got this problem. Uh, so you've got to try and dig that out. It's it's probably going to be very difficult for these guys to get that experience unless they make a lot of mistakes. And I think this is where a lot of that 75% failure rate comes from. Mm-hmm. Look, we're, we come from the operating side. I worked in investment banks, but I'm not an investment banker, right? Mm-hmm. I've, I've come through the through the technology, worked in banks, grown fintechs, worked in unicorns, know how this works from a startup scale-up point of view. Mm-hmm. We built our data model, which is everything we are, we're based on, based on real experience, uh, seeing where the metrics go, predicting outcomes, predicting where the failure points will be. Now, we have got a platform. We've built it into a platform. It's not foolproof. We still put operators who have worked in fintechs for 20 years alongside our platform to make sure that we're making sure we do the right things in those companies. Mm-hmm. Now, we, like I said, we can flip the switch from a 75% failure to a 75% success rate by doing that, but it's not scalable mm-hmm. by everybody taking that same approach. And there has to be more that can be done. And so is it an a, a enablement of the, the board members? As I said, if they can't add value by telling you how you're going to build, operate, or think, then they're the wrong investors. But mm-hmm. the founder has to be educated to look for that. And, you know, you're, you're basically letting a lot of, and again, let's be, let's, let's push it just to upset people. You're basically, <laughs> putting, you're basically putting a group of toddlers over here with money and a group of toddlers over here with an idea without a teacher in the room and saying, go on, mm-hmm. create. And mm-hmm. again, extreme. But that's sometimes where you get the problems. And you, they're not going to create something nice. You're not going to want to put it on your fridge for very long. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, thinking about this as I think about you know, the huge successes, the huge unicorns, and the very high-profile ones that we hear of Silicon Valley all the podcast, and so many they talk about. We had this great investor on board. We had this great investor on board. Now I know there's a thought out there: venture capitalists don't do anything and they don't really contribute to companies. But clearly, they're the successful companies. Generally speaking seem to have had a very good investor or several very good investors aboard for support. Is it a case of, you think, if you can't get that right venture capital support, you're kind of screwed? Or do you think it's just going to be harder? Or, it, it, you know, what, 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 what's the problem? Or how do we solve it? Yeah, look, I think, I think there's two things. You need that right venture capital mm-hmm. people. Exactly that, right? So, so brilliant investors are brilliant right and there's just not not enough of them that's mm-hmm. that's the problem yeah and the other thing you can do is you can hire an insanely good team inside the organization mm-hmm. right i've worked inside organizations where we bought the creme de la creme of the fintech world we got five or six people who really understood how to do this from the inside the organization and then do you know what yes the investors are, are less relevant you almost educate them on the path it's like Here's what great looks like. Here's where we're at at the moment. Here's what we're changing. Any questions? Mm-hmm. Right. You can drive it that way. Mm-hmm. If you can get both, then wow, mm-hmm. that's when magic happens. Okay. Then you've got something great. And I think if you as you go up there, having neither, having one or the other, having both, that's 
That's really where you really want to get to. And yes, look, great idea, great product market fit and all that sort of stuff is, is important. But I, again, a little bit contentious. I think if you've got the right group of investors and the right group of operators inside of an organization, they'd work out an idea pretty quickly. They'd work out how to get it to market. They'd work out how to make it work. And I think the idea almost becomes secondary as you get that sort of ultimate dream team in place. But you're not going to get that very often. So that's the that's the problem. Yeah, yeah. And and you mentioned this sort of shortage of talent and almost on the board and the operating side. Is that something where there's talent somewhere out there, we need to pull it more into venture capital industry, or we need to get more people somehow with more experience to get to get this working better? Or where do we grow the number of people? <laughs> so, I, so I think, look, there's, there's no, okay, incubators, accelerators, everything else comes with yeah. There's no real school for growing, growing the business, right? There's, yeah. there's interesting things out there, nothing perfect in, in my view. I think actually it's a mindset thing. Mm-hmm. There's, okay, the people going into organizations, here's where I think the biggest problems with FinTech, or actually just in all organizations, there are too many people going to a job and think, you know, oh, I've got to be careful, I could be fired. I don't want to say the wrong things. I've got to follow the rules, I've got to follow the hierarchy. I see Series A, Series B companies that should be slipping into hyper growth quite easily, but they'll, they won't take the risks because there's not enough people in that organization who will have a founder mentality. It's sort of like an unfounder mentality. You're not the founder. You've skipped the risk of not being able to pay the bills because you come in at the point where they've got some funding. Mm-hmm. But have the mentality that you own it. Just get on with it and drive it through, own it and build it. I think that side of it, there's a huge, there's a huge dearth of A players, I think, in fintech. And I can't tell you why. Maybe it's look, I worked in banks for years. I think a lot of people end up staying in the corporate world and they're pretty comfortable. They they enjoy it. There's a lot less risk, and to be honest, there can be a lot less stress mm-hmm. than when you're in a in, yeah. a in a startup scale-up. So I understand some people don't want to do it. On the investor side. I think it's known what great and good looks like. I think there's there's learning. There's a bit of an education around what should things look like. Is there's no real model for you to get an understanding of what what should a fintech model KPI metrics look like in this subsector of fintech at this stage of growth? Are they looking good, bad, or indifferent? And it seems to me that's a, that's a challenge because. One of the sort of things underlying right, you know, right at the head of this conversation I said, how is fintech doing, was at the back of mind. We talk about fintech as kind of one amorphous, homogeneous sort of thing, and it's far from it. It is nothing like So yeah. if, you've got, if you've got experience, you, you've got a lot of, say, banking experience. You know, if, if you come to an insurance fintech, maybe you're not as well-placed. No, absolutely not, right? And I think this is, and this is something we had actually from our... Funny, funny, I got asked uh, a couple weeks ago, what do, what do I have as a problem with scale? Then we, we help people to scale. So they, they turned it on me and said, where is your problem with scaling? It's like, that's a great question. Our problem with scaling was not product market fit. It's exactly that. It's the deep domain knowledge when we go outside comfort zone. So mm-hmm. in short tech, when you look at what we put the data model, we know that our data model works in health tech. We know that it works in edge tech. But I'm not a health tech expert. I can't. I can't. I can't have the gut feel for the fundamentals of where that data is going to go. Mm-hmm. So you're exactly right. And we we talk about fintech, and you know it can be anything from 
a very low level tech sort of an enablement piece that's then going to form into a platform. It can be a neo bank, it can be mm. any sort of service offering, a P2P payments provider. It, it can be anything. And I, I do think you're exactly right. I think there's a huge diversity of what does good look like there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the question that then springs to mind is we see a lot of generalist venture capital investors. Now, some of these are maybe not as generalist as they might suggest, but there is this feeling that I've got this idea of what a good venture capital company or investment looks like in broad terms or across a variety of areas. Therefore, I can... I can have a fintech and an edtech and a health tech in, in, in my suite of companies I'm on the board of, and I'm fine because I know the general principles of management. Is that really true, do you think? I think it can work because I think you can you can invest. If, look, again, I'll come back to it. If you're investing in what you look for is good people and you look for where they can go, then good people are pretty much good people across mm-hmm. different segmentations. Now, look from our from our side because we're we're very much data driven, and we look at the data. We know that our model needs a lot of refinement to move into the the other areas. And look, I, I can put it into a guess context. So, where I'm saying that I think we could switch it from a 75% failure to 75% success in fintech, I would say in health tech, edutech, we could probably swing it from 25 to 45. Right? Mm-hmm just because there's, there are certain parts of the data model that are representative and walk through. But there's that extra bit that is the, you know, really understanding the intricacies of how it all works. I would assume it's a very similar type thing from the, the investment side as well when you look at models and break it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I do wonder, you know, they do wonder if some of this is also finding the right person. It's like, you know, if you know you can find a domain expert, maybe that obviates the need for you as a venture capital investor to to actually have that detailed knowledge. Yeah, and, and I do think that's correct. I think, again, I think there is that, you know, we see that middle ground of investors and, you know, the, the founders. I think there needs to be more people sitting in that world. You know, there needs to be more people that are taken seriously and used by the founders, used by the investors, because you do get great results when you start doing that sort of thing. So when we chatted before the conversation, we spoke a little bit about work-life balance. And it's just all very demanding. And I, I want to get onto this because um, I think it's a really important topic. So sort of theory or hypothesis, is work-life balance actually possible in venture-funded startups? Yes. <laughs> but uh, um, it is. But you, okay, so there's, there's, there's several things you have to think about, right? So... And there's, there's, de- there's several different approaches you see. So I've worked with companies where you have sort of the four-day work week and you you go down that sort of route. Mm-hmm. And theoretically, a great idea, you can have a bit of a work-life balance release that, not if you're at a senior level or you're customer-facing, you can't, because guess what? Your customers also work on Thursdays and they, they want to have someone to talk to. I think you have to, I think you have to personally build a, a work-life balance into what works for you. Because, you know, let me, give you, let me give you a horror story, then I'll tell you how I deal with it. Mm-hmm. Let me briefly do it this before. Yeah. I've seen several founders who follow the rule book, and, and I understand it, of putting everything they have into their business. They have nothing else in their lives. Literally, it's the one thing they live for on a day-to-day basis. And then the company starts to fail. And the company goes downhill, and they have nowhere to turn. And there's nowhere to go and recharge, nowhere to escape. And that downward cycle goes very, very quickly. You need to pull out of that dive, 
distract yourself, take time to breathe, pull yourself back into it. Yeah. Presumably that's very tough because there is this Silicon Valley in particular, but there is this feeling that if you're not working a 70-hour week, someone else is in your competitor and they're going to win because they're working 70 hours if you're working 55 yeah, you can you can work smarter, not harder sometimes, right? <laughs> and I think I think there's look, I was saying to you before we before we started talking, I think one of the best things so I said to you, I, so my my company based in London, I moved out to Dubai to start up our Middle East office just because I've seen huge opportunities out here and I think it's a it's a very, very lively place. The benefit biggest benefit I've got from it though is that I now have from seven AM to ten AM my time every morning and nobody else around because all my clients are in Europe and the US. And I use that time I go to the gym, I'll meditate, I'll make sure I have a good breakfast, I'll go for a walk, I'll I'll just do things for me to recharge. I'll think honestly, I am most creative when I do those things. I've got so many voice notes on my phone or little scraps of paper I write on them and and I, look, I mean, I'm in a place where it's the biohacking's phenomenal. I do all sorts of weird things in oxygen chambers and things. So I think <laughs> you don't need to go that far. But it's, but it's what I want to do because when I've lived in London, New York, or anywhere else previously, I get up at seven in the morning. Everybody else is seven in the morning. Your point, it's the, it's the FOMO. Oh my God, they're working. I need to be working. I need to go and mm-hmm. do that. And then what happens is I burn myself out during the day. End of the day, I'll go for a beer, which is slowly killing my body rather than increasing it, right? I'll start a beer, but that's a different story. I'm trying to avoid it at 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly believe that me doing that has made me 10 times better at my job and given me a completely different... I fall into that trap. I worked in investment banks. I've worked in mm-hmm. startups. I've worked in scale-ups. I've worked 70, 80, 90-hour weeks and you know fought through. I still work 70 hours a week, but actually it's okay because I'm actually doing those couple of hours every morning that are for me and actually put my body and my mind in a place where I can do it. So I think it is possible to have a life-work balance, but you have to design it based on the terms that are available to you and you have to take control of it. You have to put those things in your diary and make them you know, non-negotiable. Yeah. So if a founder is on that, that treadmill, is that the solution? Just say, right, carve out two hours a day or whatever it is, or... You know, how, how would you advise a founder who's kind of stuck in that mentality just to open the blinkers, say, right, you can't do this for, for the next two years because you'll end up in, in an early grave? Well, I was going to say, look, look, at the, look at the opportunities, right? Your choice is you carry on doing exactly what you're doing. And then fast forward two years, assuming things go bad, right? Assume, assume a bad. I'm a positive guy. I never seen things go bad. But just assume a bad case scenario because I've seen several of these. Uh-huh. You're then going to be sitting there all alone with a failed business, miserable, heart disease, stressed as hell, and no friends or family around you. Uh Or you could have the opportunity where it all fails, you can pick yourself back up, you can start again, you can try because you know what, you've got your physical and mental health, you've still got the people around you, you've still got that support mechanism around you, and you can still go. But actually, I think if you do take that time out, as I said about myself, because I'm taking the time, I'm not in constant turmoil and like fighting trying to get there. I take that one, two hours a day to myself just to think. I work out, you can be like, do what you need to do. And it just gives me that time to rethink about, actually, it's, it's okay. I know what I need to do next. I can take a more considered approach to how I drive those things. Mm-hmm. I feel probably more mentally stable than I probably ever have been, to be honest, in a mm-hmm. work environment. So I would recommend everybody does it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and presumably there is that issue about the personality types of founders 
perhaps isn't always conducive to that, in that you, know, you get that type A, highly driven, highly focused, and that's how they got to getting a company off the ground and coming around saying, okay, find, you know, carve out a couple of days, and I say, well, what do I do? I see, but I see, I, I think there's a way, so, and I, so I am a, I am very much a metrics, I need to do better, I always want to do better than myself, I want to get there mm. and do that. All you're going to do is slightly change the mindset. Like I, I, a whoop strap, I measure everything and I've got, you know, I, I, I do all, I meditate with a headband and all sorts of things and mm-hmm. I, I just try and better myself. I can lift more weights now than I could two weeks ago. I can run faster or further than I could two weeks ago. You can still have the metrics. You can still just compete against yourself in something different mm-hmm. that actually is pushing you to become a better version of yourself that actually will reflect on that business and make it strong. It's mm-hmm. hard to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I've had several founders say to me, I can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, it's interesting, actually, on the other side of the equation, on the investor side, I know a lot of VCs who are triathletes, long-distance cyclists, runners, mm-hmm. and everything else. They find a way to do it. They drive that. And again, coming back to the help the founders, I really think that's something else that community can have. It's like, look, you're working mm-hmm. really hard. You're making us money. Come for a cycle with me. <laughs> Come for a cycle with me. Come for a run with me. Let's go to the gym together, mm-hmm. right? Maybe that becomes a bit fluffy at times and geography may not help. But mm-hmm. there's a... You know, stick something on straw that, you know, hey, I'm going to run further than you, faster than you. Make it competitive. Everyone's competitive in this in this environment. So so use that to the best the best possible abilities. Yeah, yeah. And heaven forbid, if someone does get to the point of crisis, what can you as this kind of an external advisor, mentor, whatever, do to get them out of that? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things we end up doing. And I, I jokingly, I shouldn't say jokingly, but I... I almost sometimes become a marriage guidance counselor with founders. Mm-hmm. That's always a, an interesting one, also a CEO whisperer. Look, it, it never hurts to talk to somebody. It all never hurts to sort of have a conversation about, okay, well, where did things go wrong? How bad are they? Is it still recoverable? What can we help to change? Where can we push in? I find the most, well, the hardest work with the most interesting companies we get pulled into are those rescue missions. Uh-huh. They are the ones that are fundamentally, and it's usually the investors that pull us in and say, this company's got a problem. Uh-huh. They're, they're all crazy. They're making no money. Nothing's working. Everything they tell us we find out isn't true, whatever it may be. What we do at that point is we do something really interesting because it's the VC that sends us in. And we say, right, okay, we'll go in there, but here's the deal. We're going to go in there and we're going to tell you absolutely nothing about what we find for the next six weeks at least until we've done something, we've worked out what's happening. And we go in there and we build, you know, rapport and trust with the founders. Look, they have to trust us. And in those circumstances, presumably the founders are in pretty bad shape in some sense. You know, how, and, and, and I was interested in how you pull the founders up. Um, brutal honesty. <laughs> it's cruel to be kind. I've I found, look, we tried, we tried sometimes with, you know, the hug and the, hey, let's try and work this out together. We're all in this. And we are, right? As you said earlier, we, we make money if they make money. So day one, it's look, if we don't turn this around, we don't make anything out of this. So I can assure you we're here to make sure this works as much as you're going to make sure this works. But we find that if we sit down with them and give them the brutal honesty of, here's what's not working, here's why, here's the mistakes, here's what we're going to do about it, and here's how we do, you know, the path to making this right. Uh-huh. We will keep that bit under the carpet away from the investors or whoever, uh-huh. right? Because there's, there's no reason for us to start saying this was, you know, Dave, Joe, Jeff, Stoll, whatever this may be. It's all about 
we found the problem. We know how we're going to address it. We're going to move this forward. This is where we're going to move out to. And what will generally happen is after six weeks, we will present with the founders to the investors and say, here's the, here's the findings. Here's the fix. This is the timeline. This is what we need your help with. That's generally how we do it. Look, it's a, it's a, the first thing is admitting you've got a problem, right? It's the same with everything. Uh-huh. And trust me, sometimes we go in and the founders are still rallying the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. The investors don't know what they're talking about. They know best. The ego is still shining through. Yeah, they're, they're in denial. Yeah, that, that's difficult. And again, the, the brutal honesty and the, mm-hmm. the difficult conversations, I found it saves a lot of time for everybody. Yeah. I mean, presumably having a path out of that is... I would say probably more, even more important because it's very easy. I, I would imagine without that pass, you can go in and criticize the founder and the founder will say, it's all criticism. Well, it, it's just criticism in a, in a sense. And, and it either, it's either at least a helplessness. It's like, well, there's all these problems. I don't know what to do. Or it just reinforces that sense of denial. But, if you, but, I, but I think it's also a simple statement I make, which is, look, I understand that it feels like everybody's criticizing and everybody's pointing the finger at you. Mm-hmm. Trust me, there's a lot of people made mistakes to allow it to get to this point. Mm-hmm. And everybody who's involved in that wants to make this better. Founders, employees, investors, customers sometimes, partners, whatever it may be. And it's, it's our job to make sure that you can do that. And that's actually just another interesting one, which is on more than one occasion, I found one of the things that brings companies down very quickly when you get to that sort of tipping point is the wrong customers or having bad customers or the wrong commercial terms around contracts, but the unwillingness to go and renegotiate mm-hmm. with them. And it can, it can, I've seen it kill more than one company that they just like, Oh no, but we're loyal. Yeah. So, so what do you mean by the wrong customer here? Because I think you, I, I've heard it used several times, but you, I suspect you have a very specific idea here. Yeah, so you can so imagine you go and sign your first customer, right? Mm-hmm. Nine times out of ten, you almost give it away. Yeah. Right. And there's there's some brilliant especially in SaaS, right? Because in a in a SaaS pricing model, your value and your cost you, like you, you should basically be making more money as the volumes go up. Yeah. What you generally find is and most people get away from this because they scale and you can you can avoid it and you can balance, you can renegotiate. Perfect storm. You sign a customer, they're your first customer, they're probably the customer that you signed that got you your next funding round or your first funding round, okay? So everybody's happy, this is brilliant. You give them a really good service, 11 store service, everything's great. You then go and get some more customers. You start to scale out your business. This customer's getting less love from the CEO, founder, because actually you're getting bigger customers that are more important to you at that point in time. So these guys are less, less connected with you and everything else and that, that bond goes away. And this, this can happen over a six month, 12 month period, right? Mm-hmm. And those next customers are bigger. So therefore the scale they need is bigger. So you've got to invest more into your tech stack, maybe from a scalability point of view, new, new functionality is going to be increased or whatever that be. Your AWS costs go up, whatever it may be, right? Which was nothing when you had this first customer. But actually now the bigger this customer gets, the less money you're making because you're at a negative margin because your cost base has increased faster than where you gave it away to them to start with because you weren't thinking long-term. You're not willing to go back and have that conversation with them because guess what? You were very happy you signed a three, five-year deal with them at the outset, and that mm-hmm. made perfect sense to you because that's how you got your funding, but that is now burning you. And other things need to happen with you know not renegotiating this, not getting the tech changes right. But you you can have an entire segmentation of five, 10, 20 of these. It could be 
this group of customers is very low. This group of customers actually is not much better. And by the time you get up to to here, mm-hmm. uh, you, you see it happen, right? You can be like a, a micro, group of micro lenders. You may have 40 of them because that was your business model. You now have three tier one banks who want something very, very different, very different. But you're going to look after these because you want to keep your reputation intact. The right thing to do is renegotiate or to find somebody who actually that is their proper segmentation and just pass the contracts across. Make sure these customers have a good transfer across to that play and make sure everybody, everybody works and wins mm-hmm. you win the customer wins the other company wins you don't need to make money out of it you just need to sometimes escape that that traumatic segmentation please you know you, you talk about this sort of six-week turnaround is that you know it or well turnaround might be exaggerated but six weeks to sort of create this plan yeah do founders kind of buy in in that six weeks or can it take longer? Because it would just, you know, because it seems to me sometimes it's it's not going to be as easy just to sort of say, you know, sort, sort, sort of say here's the plan. So, so usually you have so so here's a a typical way we work with customers is let's let's assume a happy path. This is not a scroll one. This is a hey, this is a good company. This could grow quite well. They may have founders. They may you know may hear this podcast and go, hey, let's see what these guys can do to help us. We can kind of get us. To that next level, blah, blah, blah. And we usually come in and use the classic, hey, we can 10x you over 18 months. That's that's where we usually look at these things. And they'll go, okay, okay, well, here's here's the problems we think we've got. Um, customer adoption, we're, we're not developing our network fast, effects fast enough. Our value is not there, so the Lambda dot expand is not going fast enough. We, we can't predict where we're going to sales. Okay, here's four things. We'll put people in to look at this. Over the next six weeks, we'll see what happens. Over the next six weeks, we are on site. We're working closely with them. We're, we're taking all the data. We take about you know 30 data extracts from them. We build our model in the background. And we usually say, those four things are interesting, but actually you've got five much more fundamental things that were invisible to you that you need to fix first. That's when we show them that and they start to go, oh, now that, and we explain why that then mm-hmm. is where they think the problem is and actually where the, the underlying factor is. That's when they start to sort of feel a little bit of, we're starting to help them and they can see there's something. Mm-hmm. And so we, that's generally the first six weeks. The next six weeks are actually the most important, which is we've taken the four we had originally, the new ones we found as well. We've set the baseline, the measure, and we've told you where we're going to get into over a period of time. And we can show you, we always use one metric at the end, which I think is the most important, which is here is where we'll increase the valuation of your company. But to get that, you need to do that. Here's where we'll increase revenue. Here's where we'll increase margin. Mm-hmm. Here's where we'll increase throughput, your cost efficiencies and everything else that comes with it. Follow this trajectory over a 12-month period. We should be at this point here. And here are the intersection points. That second six weeks, the founders usually lean in a bit more because they're like, okay, we I see you can actually do something that's not operational, it's more strategic. And that's where it becomes more interesting. You get more of a trust. But if it's a company that's on fire, honestly, they go one of two ways. They either run away or they'll lean in and ask us for help day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that that binary sort of result in one sense doesn't entirely surprise me. So, no. stepping back, to take a slightly wider perspective. Where do you see the sort of big opportunities just now? They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Um, <laughs> no, it's interesting, right? There are there are so many opportunities. I look embedded finance is a big thing that everybody's looking at. I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of different embedded finance solutions, taking financial services from non non traditional finance sector. I think, and it's something I'm a huge believer in, there's a, there's a huge 
changing banking that's upon us or will be upon us in the next few years. And that is that is twofold. It's a return to relationship banking and a commoditized market, a banking marketplace. Uh-huh. So anywhere that is looking for a individual banking experience, personalized banking experience that can give me as a consumer the bank I want, banking experience I want versus the, the bank of Brian, uh-huh. right? And I think on the other side is anywhere where they're building the rails around the potential for a commoditized banking marketplace. Now, let me just unpick that a little bit. Two things. Where where are banks sitting as trust tokens? They've always been sitting there as trust tokens, huge capital reserves regulated. Now, the trust, especially as you get into younger generations, actually moves to big tech in other areas, right? So you can actually get your personal banking relationship potentially with Amazon, Apple, whatever it may be, right? We've all got our phones, our watches, whatever we have on them at the time. Anybody who jumps into that ecosystem, I think, has got something really interesting they can offer because, you know, the you can build AI into it, you can build um, an amalgamation of different products, you can give me what I need, you can do a multi banking relationship, whatever that may be. I think then on the flip side of that is I should then be able to, through this channel, access any banking service from any bank in the world in a way I want to, to operate. Uh-huh. Prime example, very easy to explain because I'm in the Middle East. If I want to have an uh, Islamic banking products, I should be, I could be anywhere in the world and I should be able to get access to Islamic banking products. And it should be for, you know, religious beliefs, eco beliefs, whatever it may be, whatever your reason for wanting to do this, no profitability, wherever this may go. And so I should be able to sit in the Middle East, use a UK bank account or UK access point channel and be able to access a micro lender in Vietnam because actually they're offering me the best service or the best value or whatever it may be, the best routing of what I believe in and what I need to get. Yeah. Or there may be a charity I want to help and therefore there's a kickback. That I think is a you know, big step forward, huge place. But I think anything that goes into that is, is very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I think there is still a long way to go with what I'm going to call Banking infrastructure 3.0, call it 4.05, whatever one number you want to pick. So so take core banking, it's nowhere I know pretty well, right? So core mm-hmm. banking, there was a lot of legacy vendors that ran all the banks, mm-hmm. still run all the banks in the US, actually. We can, can have US conversations typically because the US is very different <laughs> everywhere else, mm-hmm. but still run a lot of the lot of those. You then got into a whole new generation of core banking providers. You have Mambu Stalk Machines, 10Xs, and providing that next level of this is this is a much smarter, much better way of working, actually more cost-effective, allows you to scale and to go to different segmentations. I think there's now a next generation of that type of technology available. You know, one that comes to mind with those guys is a company in Estonia called Tum. They're, they're currently driving something very different in the market and they're growing there. And just one example of hundreds you can throw in these things. Um, I think across the board, you look at that, you look at risk, money laundering, everywhere there's that banking infrastructure, I think we're coming to a more tech-savvy, more connected marketplace. So anything that's building that next generation, as long as they're looking at it from a connectivity marketplace point of view to be part of those rails, then I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Yeah. So you think this kind of siloed, we create a single product doing a single thing, that time is past. It's got to be something more sophisticated now. Well, actually, interestingly, I think it's exactly, and almost more that if you look at it another way. Be absolutely brilliant at one thing, right? but make friends with everybody else around you. Be brilliant to do that everywhere for everybody, mm-hmm. but make sure you can connect into everybody else who's brilliant at their one specific thing as well, rather than being a, this is us, we've got big walls along the side of us. Okay. 
Well, that, that's an interesting thought. I could carry on for hours, I suspect, on this. But what I'd like to do now is turn briefly to our favourite questions. So okay. we'll throw these at you and get your thoughts. So I know you're not primarily an investment manager, but what was the most recent public and announced investment you made and why do you make it? So um, as I say, we, we generally do do sort of earn out of our equity. That's where the majority of this sort of goes in for us. And there's one really interesting one at the moment um, that we're working with that's just been announced, a company called uh, Runa, based mm-hmm. in the UK, backed by some some very strong, actually, and this is actually a good primary example, backed by some VCs we know well and VCs that we know that can actually go in there and make this difference and, and make those, those, those uh, you know, the teaching them what they need to do next. We've invested in that company or we got involved in that company because, one, we believe in the product, exceptionally strong founder, CEO, mm-hmm. and we can see the help he needs to get to his business to that next level by bringing some more talent and, and getting involved. Uh, I think watch this space on this company. I do think that it's going to be you know, very, very fun to watch their growth. Start off in gift cards, now moving on to a, a much more diverse ecosystem of actually payment provider and money movements. Okay, we shall keep our eyes peeled for that. So in the classic VC triumvirate of market product and management, we know they're all important, but which do you think is the most important? I think I know what your answer is going to be for what you said already. Yeah, it's management. <laughs> um, look, the, the market is, it's interesting. I think we have nine data points and that's three of them. Mm-hmm. The market is cyclical. It's unpredictable at, at best, but I think, look, it's cyclical and it can take you there and the market can drive forwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can... With the right product, you can define a market, redirect a market. It's tough, but you can do it. Product, massively important for you to get the product right, but I think you've got time to get the product right if you have the right management. So product can drive market. Management can drive product. People drive management. So for me, it's always that people side of things that's most important. Okay. Tell us about the time you failed and what you learned from it. Oh, so many. So I, I, can, I can give you some non-fintech related ones. I'll give you a fintech related one as well, actually. So I, I work with some companies where trying to take a company on, if you're going to completely regenerate the way that you have a go-to-market, you basically need an 18-month return on your investment. Mm-hmm. You, need to, you need to understand when you go into these, and this was very, this was pre-cubed. You need to understand what is the timeline that actually the company wants to achieve things in as well. So trying to squeeze an 18-month standard cycle of completely renewing the GTM type piece you can't do within six months. Mm-hmm. I proved you can't do it in six months as well. So that was, uh, that was definitely <laughs> a learning curve not to try and do that twice. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I think my, my, my favorite failure was um, I actually started a, a coffee shop in London with one of my best friends who works in hospitality, mm-hmm. thinking that it would be very cool. And for, for those of you who know London, we did it in Shoreditch, which is where there's at least three coffee shops to every other shop uh, there is. <laughs> Yeah, and we knew nothing about opening a coffee shop. And we burnt money like nobody else could possibly burn money and learned all sorts of things around, you know, if, if you don't have a customer for two minutes, you need to throw the coffee away and start again. It comes back to your point around domain knowledge. I think mm-hmm. that's where I learned the point of, I understand business, I understand the business cycles. I read a couple of books. I spoke to other people who ran coffee shops. Do that, put the money in failed within 24 hours honestly it was horrendous but but that's you know that's i think that's what we all have to learn if you do what you're good at do what you know you can make mistakes but expect them to be expensive yeah yeah, yeah. so 
usually we ask this about something else, but what would you change about the fintech industry? What would I change about the fintech industry? Look, I think I would, I'm understanding in, this is about four years ago in Singapore, I stood on stage and I had uh, investors, founders, banks, everybody, the entire ecosystem in a room was about 2,000 people and I was giving a talk and I said, could I just, uh, everybody just put your hands up. Who wants to come up on stage now and just share with me completely openly and transparency your, your strategy and what your plans are for the next five years with nothing held back? And everybody laughed. Like, <laughs> it, was just, it was just open laughter. And it was like, nobody moved. Problem. <laughs> nobody moves. It's transparency. Start. And again, I'll come back to something we did right at the front, which is the transparency between investors and founders I think needs to be a hell of a lot better. The value mm-hmm. add between the two of them, the understanding, the reading of them, that connectivity between the two of them. That transparency and bringing out that transparency to arrive at an open understanding. I, look, I think one of the coolest things ever done in the history of FinTech was a mass, the Singapore regulator putting their 100 problem statements out several years ago that said, here's 100 problems with the, with the industry, come and help us fix them. That sort of openness, transparency, connectivity, alignment, missing throughout for me it's bc founder us and them founders and their teams sometimes us and them you know fintech and their customers us and them banks and innovation fintechs us and them there has to be a better way of doing that i would fix that in a heartbeat yeah yeah i suspect finance as generally has a problem with that because obviously there's a, some areas there's a lot of confidentiality needed but i suspect in some ways that's gone too far and everyone's like okay really protective of what they see as proprietary knowledge when actual fact there isn't really a lot of proprietary knowledge in in there but it's also something else which i think is almost more fundamental and i've worked in all three of these so i'll, I'll, I'll judge myself for anybody else founders finance investors, bankers, mm-hmm. consultants, ego. That's what they all have in common, mm-hmm. right? And that's, and if we need to see past the ego and look for that, you know, greater good, for want mm-hmm. of a better term, yeah. that actually drives us up. Because we have to drive innovation. The, the pace of innovation has to go from being 25% of optimum to being 75, 80, 90% of optimum at the very least for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, as listeners know, I am an avid reader. I'm always out for suggestions. So, are there any books out there you like and re- would recommend? What sort of things do you like? I, I read a book <laughs> a week. I'm one of those annoying people. Uh, so do I. So, whatever you think, whatever you would like to suggest. So, I, the autobiography of the guy who took over from Disney, from Walt Disney, who's just gone back in. What's his name? Um, Bob Iger. Bob Iger. Yeah, the Bob Iger biography was fascinating to me. I thought that was really interesting, the way he went about things and how he drove it. Look, taking something like Disney and then going by in Star Wars, Pixar and Marvel and putting mm-hmm. it in and making it even bigger of a beast and you know, the Disney Channel and everything else. I, I loved that way of thinking and going about it. Mm-hmm. I think there's some really interesting books, pretty old books, things like um, Rules for Revolutionaries by Guy Kawasaki. Mm-hmm. He was the first... Chief Evangelist at Apple, really, really interesting book. I really should probably try and remember more books I read rather than just reading them <laughs> and then just forgetting about them, which is always the mistake everybody makes. Yes. Well, there's a couple of good suggestions there. I'd love your recommendations as well. Please let me know because I, I'm always open to new books. Well, I think the two that I have read and li- li- risk of boring listeners, there's The Power Law by Sebastian Malaby, 
which is a history of the venture capital industry, which I thought was really well put together. And the other one, which I've read recently, which I quite like, is Lying for Money, which is all about financial fraud. And that's a really interesting, I mean, he touches on Ponzi and and Madoff, but he touches on a whole pile of other things as well. And that's a really fascinating read as someone who does diligence. And I've come across some one or two things that, frankly, are probably on the wrong side of uh, the spectrum. Um, So Awesome. Love it. I'll read both. Okay. I I shall put links to all these in the show notes so listeners can find them. What do you wish you, you knew when you started Venture Capital that you know now? Again, I'm trying not to insult everybody again, but here we go. I wish I'd known that not all the rules have been made and not all the rules need to be followed. Mm-hmm. So I think some of the rules are actually misleading. Things like, you know, the lemmings mentality around following everybody else. If somebody else makes a decision, how do you know that's the right decision? If somebody else is investing, how do you know it's the right way to invest? Um, I wish I'd known that there wasn't the transparency between the founders and the VCs. And I wish I'd known that, well, I say knew, but I wish I'd understood more that the founder waking up every day, having the biggest job they've ever had in their life and the adaption they need to make to that and the time you need to give them, support you need to give them and the way you need to help them drive to that next level and grow as a person, an entrepreneur, a founder. Mm-hmm. I, wish I'd, I wish I'd been more aware of that and spent more time thinking about that. Yeah, yeah. And certainly, I like the way you put that, because I think I've heard that idea kind of mentioned, but the way you say about waking up every morning and, and it's, it's a bigger job, I think is a very good way of putting it. Yeah. And it's the toughest job in the world, to be honest, when you think about it like that. Yeah, absolutely. So if people want to find out more about what you're doing at Cubed, where can they go? Uh, they can find us through uh, cubed.company, which is our website, uh, on LinkedIn, yeah, usual places, to be honest. And uh, please, I'd love people to reach out to us. We're always happy to have conversations yep. and uh, see if we can help anybody. And I think you're recruiting as well, from what I saw. Oh, good look. Well done. Uh, <laughs> yes, we are. We're recruiting in Dubai and UK. We're recruiting uh, associate operating partners at the moment. We're expanding quite a lot. Um, and so, yeah, anybody who knows anybody that's really talented and wants to get involved in what we do, also, please, introduce. Yeah. So, two-sided market here. You can get involved with both sides if you want. Exactly. Thank you very much for coming on today, Elliot. That has been a great conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Me too, Brian. Pleasure. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Elliot. I had a whole list of questions on FinTech that we totally ignored, but Elliot's insights into scaling companies and sorting out their problems were too good to miss. As usual, you can get full show notes with links at harmonandco.com forward slash podcast. You can also subscribe directly on all good podcast services and players or through the link in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please give us a review with lots of stars on your favourite podcast app. We can be contacted at inquiries at harmonandco.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in two weeks' time.